turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Uh, we're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 15, and really we're, we're going to be considering today uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, journey into Thessalonica um, and Berea uh, and the effectiveness of his preaching and the, the singular focus that he has on spreading the gospel. And I, I think this is a really, really important text for us as a church because these were, these were men, Paul and Silas, uh, as they are called by their accusers in the middle of this passage, these are men who are turning the world upside down. And I think that that accusation that is brought against them should be a term that is applied to us today uh, in, in the truest sense of the word. The gospel does turn the world upside down because it's an upside down kingdom. Uh, and we need to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. D.L. Moody once said uh, that he was listening to his friend uh, Henry Varley speak. And this is when Moody was just a shoe salesman in Chicago. Moody was the great, great global evangelist and revivalist. And he, and he heard these words declared, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. And Moody thought to himself, well, I'm going to be that guy. Because really all that was being asked of the listeners is who is willing to step out onto the precipice of faith and truly surrender their whole life to me and to the power of my spirit. And Moody's like, I'm going to be that guy. Moody was uneducated. He was a shoe salesman. He stepped out. He was often mocked by, uh, by pastors for being unrefined in his speech and yet probably one of the most powerful evangelists in church history. Millions of people came to faith through his ministry. Moody was so known for his deep, burning concern for people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus that once he walked up to a young man on a street corner and said, young man, tell me about your faith in Jesus Christ. And the young man said, that's none of your business. And D.L. Moody says, young man, it is absolutely my business. And the man said, then you must be D.L. Moody. Do we have that kind of reputation of a man who is so concerned? He was so outrageous. He, 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 didn't have, he wanted to be a Sunday school teacher, but there were no kids. And so he went around Chicago with a, with a donkey and a bag of candy and, and <laughs> invited kids to come. You can't do that today. Uh, but the, the power of, of, of the gospel being proclaimed through, through a man who just said, I will do anything to get people to know my Savior. I will do anything to preach the gospel of life because it is of eternal value and that there is eternal destinies at stake. And that burning passion just gave him this energy to just go and go and go, and he poured himself out for King Jesus. And I want us to be a people that live like that. I want us to be a church that is known for turning the world in Portland upside down for King Jesus. David Livingston said one time, I am prepared to go anywhere as long as it is forward, and that is my hope and prayer for us. And so um, I want to just uh, share with you guys as we get into this text, kind of what is this, because this I'm hoping will answer the question of what is the purpose of the church? What, are we, what do we gather for? What are we doing here uh, in this space? Uh, and what is it that we are hopefully being prepared for? I just finished a book by a theologian, a Lutheran theologian that just died recently named Robert Jensen, and, it, and the book's called The Theology and Outline, Can These Bones Live? And Jensen wrote these words, and I, I thought they were really profound. He says, 
all agree that the church is the community of a message. What the church lives for and what holds it together is not an ethic. Neither the golden rule nor the Sermon on the Mount is what the church is all about in the first instance. Nor does the church live for a political agenda from the left or from the right. Still less is the church a celebratory praxis. What the church lives for and what holds it together is rather a piece of alleged news, a message that is thought to be so important that it absolutely must be passed on. And I think that that is such a powerful declaration. As a church community, we are called to participate in the spreading of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world. We never graduate past the gospel. The church is getting more and more caught up in the spectacular and the sensational and hype and things outside of the gospel, and we must hold to our guns and say, we will do nothing but preach Christ and Him crucified. And so as I read this passage, I want, to see, I want you to see the effectiveness of Paul's evangelistic mission is that what he brought to these cities was the gospel, the good news, and what he planted were churches, communities that were, that were con- uh, committed to the spreading of this good news. This is why the gospel exploded through the known world. Uh, And so let's begin in verses one through four. We see first the persuaded It says now when they had passed through Amphipolis and and Apollo I always get this messed up Apollonia They came to Thessalonica total tongue twister city name Where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days He reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving. I want you to notice all three of those words. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. What, but what was the focus? What is it that he's explaining? What is it that he's reasoning with them? What is it that he's proving? Uh, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So what Paul does is he goes in uh, to the temple and he begins to, to reason with those Jews within this city uh, that Jesus indeed is the Messiah that they were looking for. And he utilizes the scriptures. And I, I think this is a very profound statement. He reasoned with them. Uh, that word in the Greek literally is to enter into conversation with. I always say that we as Christians are not. And remember, Luke is recording what happened. Um, But we can actually look to other passages, uh, passages from Paul's own letters to see what's going on behind the scene. Uh, And I think that that's an important thing because it's easy to become intimidated by the call to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ when you see words like reasoning, explaining, and proving because it sounds like you have to be a professional theologian to share the gospel. And that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that the gospel is anchored in history, that the gospel is bound by the scriptures, and that we need to be a people of the scriptures because the scriptures point us to King Jesus. And I think it's also important to understand that nobody comes to the Father, or excuse me, nobody comes to the Son unless the Father draw him. And so we need to always remember when we're reading these uh, these evangelistic missions where it sounds like, Paul is just using a sheer intellect to argue people into the kingdom of God is that there is always a total dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit to draw people in and that we should not be afraid to participate in this amazing, beautiful gospel message for one of the most powerful tools in in your hands as a follower of Jesus is your own testimony. 
And I think that it's easy to read a passage like this and become immediately intimidated at the thought of having to explain the gospel to anyone. And I think the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it and so deep that we can become lost in it. Uh, and that's the profound realities. You never come to an end of growing in our understanding of who Jesus is. I began to share the gospel with people within months of becoming a believer without even having read through the entire Bible because Jesus so radically changed my life, I could not be silent about it. And that's the thing is even when I came to faith, I didn't come to faith because someone laid out a bunch of, a bunch of perfect biblical arguments because I hadn't even read the Bible. Paul is dealing with the people that knew the scriptures and knew them inside and out but missed the point. And so he was drawing from the scriptures, reasoning from the scriptures under the power of the spirit. In fact, let me just read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When we think about Paul, because the way that you read Luke's uh, record of this, it can seem like Paul and his genius and his eloquence went into this place and being a Pharisee, he is able to just break down everything. And, and we can't do that. That's beyond our grasp. And I'm not a professional pastor, so Josh, you can't ask me to go in and do what Paul is doing. Well, I'm not asking you to go into a Jewish temple and explain to rabbis why King Jesus is their Messiah. Uh, what I'm calling us to is to fulfill the mission of the church, which is to make the gospel known. Uh, and I like what Paul himself said about himself in regards to his ability to communicate the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, he says, And I, when I came to you, Brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know how encouraging that is to me? I, I just today, I got here and a uh, young woman uh, working at Martha's, she said, she goes, so you're the one giving the message? I said, yeah. And she's like, oh, man are you ready for that? And I'm like, I'm never, no, you just made it worse for me because I'm already stressed out and uh, I'm always stressed out and I'm sunburnt today on my legs, which makes it really uncomfortable. Uh, and I didn't sleep well, but so no. Uh, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Notice that. He's like, he's like even the message that, that, we have been given to bring to the world is foolishness. It says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why does he say I'm not ashamed? Because it's embarrassing. Because the natural default setting of the human heart when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to bringing the gospel to the world is that we recognize that the message is insanity to the secular mind. And yet at the same time, we believe and fully believe that its upside down message is the only thing that makes sense. And we're absolutely convinced that we are not called to save people, but we are called to proclaim that message and believe that God himself will draw to himself the lost. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I think that the key to preaching the gospel is having the strong confidence that it is not dependent upon intellectual capacity, but upon spiritual illumination. And that spiritual illumination, though, let me just be very clear. I'm not diminishing the need to be people of the word because Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. And that he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And I always like to say that the spirit cannot bring to remembrance what you have not first put in your head. 
You need to allow the Spirit to bring the truth of God from the Scriptures into your heart that it might actually become reality. And I also believe that what we need to do is do what, what, uh, what Moody did, which is actually live out the message that we say we believe. Not worry about the things that we do not understand, but be obedient to the things that we do understand. And that's been deeply convicting for me. I'm reading a book right now uh, with my book club that I'm in year-round, uh, called The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene, the great English author. And within the, the book, uh, it's, it takes place in Mexico, and all the, uh, it, there's, a, there's an uprising against the Catholic Church, and all the priests are being executed. Uh, and there's one priest that's wandering the land, and he's being chased down to be killed, and he's, he's the whiskey priest. He's a drunk. Uh, but he still is the only priest left in the land, so he still has to, to give the Eucharist uh, to to these peasants as he travels through the land, but he's, con- he's deeply conflicted because his life does not line up with his calling. Um, and yet, God uses him in spite of that, uh, but it creates this deep conflict, and even conflict for those whom he goes to minister to. They come to him because he's the only one, but they also see, they also see the contradiction of his life. And I think for us, if we want to be convincing, uh, as important as it is for us to be grounded in the word of God, it is also important that we obey what we understand. And remember what I say, we're not talking about religion. We don't do this that God might accept us. We recognize, based upon the gospel message, that God has accepted us in spite of ourselves through Jesus Christ. And now, out of the joy of receiving that new life, his spirit, I live out that gospel. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. So the gift that comes freely becomes a gift that now must be worked out. That's why Moody said, salvation is a gold mine. It must be dug out. And I think that we have a responsibility to proclaim. And here's the thing I want you guys to understand is that this is so important. We have this false dichotomy. I think one of the most damaging things done in the church today is I constantly hear pastors proclaim I proclaim the difficulty of preaching the gospel in a post-Christian, post-modern context. Listen, anyone that says that is simply revealing the fact that they don't share the gospel with anyone. Because I will go as far as to say in nine years of pastoring Door of Hope and in sharing the gospel with hundreds of people outside of the church, do you know in nine years how many times I've, I've experienced hostility? Just guess once and i didn't even share with her she just saw my credit card that said door of hope and she goes door of hope what is door of hope and i'm like it's a church and she goes what kind of church and i'm like a christian church and she goes oh my gosh i almost died right there it was so (laughs) the worst thing by the way she works at uh, the vintage store right up on vintage babylon and uh (laughs) she has brown hair mid-length and she needs Jesus, so go love on her. Uh, invite her to church. I, I, just the other day, I stopped at this, at this motorcycle shop to get in, looking at new helmets because uh, I need a helmet that actually has padding inside it. Um, because although I believe that the power of the spirit is dependent on spiritual illumination, he still does use the mind, and a serious head trauma would be damaging to my preaching career. So, uh, so I was in there in the store, and I began to talk with the guy, the owner, with the owner, and I just... And just normal conversation about motorcycles, about life. And then he, he mentioned that he had to go get his kid from school. And I'm like, so do I. How old's your kid? Oh, I have a 12-year-old daughter. So do I. Oh, amazing. How old are you? I'm 45. Oh, I'm 44. And it was like just 
we're just chatting about life. And then, he, and then he asked me the question that I love being asked. What do you do? And I said, I go, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm a preacher. And he goes, you do not, classic, this is every time, you do not look like a pastor. Um, and I'm like, I resent that. I think I look exactly like a pastor. Uh, and, uh, and then and from, from there, it's like, what kind of church? And I'm like, it's this church door of hope. We meet at Revolution Hall right over at Washington High School on Sundays at this time. He's like, what time are the services? And he's like, man, that's so cool. I've just been, I've been fe- just kind of feeling like I, I need to need something like that. I'm like, cool, you should come. I didn't lead him into an altar call in that moment, but it's just the simple steps of being willing to have even the conversation. You don't need to go in and exegete the Old Testament to everyone you meet, okay? We need to be a people that are ready in and out of season. We need to be a people, I would say, be invested in the scriptures because the scriptures are what bring to life the reality of who Jesus is. And we can't talk about Jesus if we don't believe he's with us. We can't talk about Jesus if we don't know him, and he has chosen to reveal himself to us through his scriptures. So we need to be a people of the word. We need to be a people that are willing to obey what the word says. We need to walk by faith into this grace that God has given us. His one-way love into our lives should compel us to live out that faith in the world in which he has placed us. And I promise you that in a postmodern, post-Christian city like Portland, people are hungry for truth, and they are lost, and they just want to be loved. And they want to know that there's a God who loves them. And they want to see the evidence of that love being played out in your life. So when we do church in the park, come. When you have the opportunity to invite someone to church, do it. You may not be called to exegete the Old Testament to a Jewish believer. But I promise you that the, the, the understanding the scriptures is a way of understanding the heart of God. Because all of scripture is God-breathed. It is God's revelation of his relationship with us. And what he has accomplished through his son for us. And this is why we need to be a people of the gospel. And I love what it says. That Paul, Paul was reasoning with them, explaining and proving that it was necessary. Notice, first, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ, i.e. the expected Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead. So Paul, just like we see in the previous sermons, is probably quoting uh, like Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. He's probably uh, declaring Deuteronomy 21, uh, 22 through 23, the, the cursedness of one who hangs on a tree. I'm sure he was dealing with the suffering servant from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. And so utilizing the Old Testament, showing them how they missed that the Messiah had to suffer and die before he could proclaim to them that that death was, that he might taste death for every, that his kingdom was about destroying the kingdom of darkness the reality of sin and the dominions of the, of the devil. Secondly, Paul was engaged in proclaiming Jesus. We know that wherever he went, he told the Jesus story. He told of his birth, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection, his exaltation and the gift of his spirit to those who believe in him and the forgiveness of sins granted. Thirdly, he identified the Jesus of history with the Christ of the scripture and boldly declaring that this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Notice Paul's very words to the Corinthian church. I have determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He says to the Corinthian church, uh, to the church, this is the message to the church. We preach Christ crucified. Those four words are the words that wield absolute authority for us as believers. And so we need to understand it wasn't with eloquence. He was afraid. He was trembling, but he wasn't ashamed because the love of Christ compelled him. He came in the power 
of the gospel, demonstrating the power of the gospel, which allowed him to discuss and interpret and set before them the truth of who Jesus is. Really powerful. I love this, this passage. It's interesting that it says that it doesn't, Luke doesn't use the word for belief. He says here that they were persuaded. Um, that is that they were convinced that what he was saying. So we don't know what the long-term result, uh, because he says uh, following of, of the preaching in Berea, uh, that to the Bereans that, they, that many of them believed. Here he said they're persuaded. So there's, there's a skepticism that's in Thessalonica that, that Paul is dealing with. Because look what happens. In verses 5 through 9, if we move from the persuaded, we come to the hostile. It says, but the Jews were jealous in taking some wicked men of the rabble. Um, <laughs> I, I, really, I really like that word rabble. Uh, it, it literally means like lazy person or lounger is one of the definitions, but it also just means market people. So essentially, people that go to farmer markets are <laughs> wicked, um, is what it says here. <laughs> but the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the market, from the market. Uh, they formed a mob, uh, set the city in an uproar. So these people are just, that are just waiting around, uh, and they're, they're, they're whipped up into a frenzy. And I think that this is, this is uh, important for us to see as we have those with knowledge taking advantage of those without knowledge to actually bring about a riot, to bring about a mob mentality. And it says, they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So you see how incredibly dangerous the gospel was. And there would be no reason to proclaim, keep in mind, that one of the most compelling arguments uh, for why we can trust that Jesus really did raise from the dead is there would be no reason to spread a gospel that wasn't true uh, that would actually put you in direct conflict with the Roman Empire. Uh, unless... Unless those followers of Jesus really saw Jesus raised from the dead, there would be no reason to go ahead and spread lies about a guy who was crucified because you don't want to end up like that. Total, absolute, public humiliation, the most awful way a person could die. Uh, It was all about extending pain for as long as possible. But unless they really saw something, unless Jesus really did conquer death, he wasn't he wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected. There was something new. He was the firstborn over a new creation. He could appear in rooms and yet he could eat food. That he, they saw with their own eyes and touched with their own hands. That's why John said, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We come to you with that message. And this is the thing, is the power of this gospel. And here is what, is what we see is at stake, is that they are proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that puts everyone at risk. And here's one of the most powerful things, is that Jason, who is just housing Paul and Silas, is now the one that gets taken. And you see the hostility. And we, and we always, people say like, you know, the gospel, the gospel is, is not about giving you your best life now. I can promise you that. I, I understand the four spiritual laws, and I do believe that God has a plan for your life. What I believe is that God has a perfect plan, but that for us personally, it might be quite difficult, but it's worth it. Life is suffering, but suffering is good if it has meaning, <laughs> if it's actually leading us somewhere, if the suffering actually refines us and prepares us for a life that is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And Paul believed that, 
And Silas believed that, and Jason believed it enough to, to put his own life at risk by housing these men who were turning the world upside down. And look what happens. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, they take his money, and the rest, they let them go. Listen, Jesus himself said this very clearly. When people ask me, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? It would be anything other than everything would be an absolute liar, dishonest presentation of the gospel. When King Jesus goes to the young rich ruler, he looks into the heart of the man and he sees the, the God that the young man has set up upon his heart and his God, his personal God, was his belongings. And when Jesus saw that, he said, the young man is saying, I already do all these good things. And he really did. He kept the law. He gave. He probably gave to the poor. He did all these things, but he still kept himself upon the throne of his heart. And for him, his personal idol, his God, was his possessions. And when Jesus put his finger in that sensitive spot and said, listen, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have. Take the money and give it to the poor. And it says the young rich ruler went away sad because he had much. Did Jesus chase him down and say, oh, you want to keep your stuff? No, he didn't. It says that he looked at him and loved him and said this thing. And the young rich ruler walked away. It's a, very, it's a very sad story. We don't know what the end result is, but we know that in that moment, he was not willing to lay down his life for King Jesus. The gospel is dangerous. It, it demands the whole life for there to be the full victory. I always say that it is the narrowness of the message that opens up to us the vastness of God's love. And we need to understand that Jesus himself said in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in you that in me you may have peace. He wants peace for us, but he never promises happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It comes and goes. He promises joy, which is different. That's a sustaining truth that's driven by a reality of God's very presence in my life no matter what I'm going through. And he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. I think it's important that we see that the charges laid against Paul and Silas and Jason had revolutionary tones. And this is an area of ambiguity in, um, in Christian teaching, and it remains to this day. Because on one hand, we as Christian people are called to be conscientious and law-abiding citizens, not revolutionaries. On the other hand, the kingship of Jesus has an unavoidable political implication since as his loyal subjects, we must refuse to give to any ruler or ideology the supreme homage and total obedience which are due to him alone. That's the paradox of the Christian life. And we already can feel that, which is why many of you are afraid to share the gospel, as you feel the tension of the fact that what it is that you say you believe is in direct opposition with what the world proclaims we should be pursuing. And this is a challenge for us today. So let me move on to this last section, because here we see the open-minded. Um, the brothers immediately in verses 10 through 15 sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And that word noble literally means open-minded. Um, open, and open-minded here is just they were, they were open to the scriptures. Uh, and it, look, what it says, it, look what it says about this. So they were more open to the, the message that was being proclaimed than those that were in Thessalonica. The soil was a little softer, if you will. Uh, and it says they received the word with all eagerness. Notice that. They took in what Paul was 
teaching them. They, they took it into their heart, but they didn't just settle with, oh, he said it, that must settle it. No, what, what did they do? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. I, a couple things I want to just note right here that I think is very profound is that A, they didn't take the preacher's word at his word. He wasn't the ultimate authority. He, was the, he is the witness, the herald to the king, but they were testing what he said to the scriptures for themselves. And even, even John says, you do not need a teacher for you have been given the spirit. He isn't saying that, that God doesn't use teachers and preachers, but he's saying that each person, all of us as followers of Jesus, we should be examining the scriptures. You shouldn't just take my word at it. You should be examining what I say. Do you have a Bible with you? Are you just, it's the only Bible you get when you come and hear me preach on Sunday? Because that's dangerous. Because I'm not here to be your Jesus. I'm not even here to be your gateway to Jesus. I'm here to be a brother with you, my brothers and sisters, as a part of this community. And we are the church, the bride of Christ. And we together should be examining the scriptures to see what it is that God has said. Yes, has God called me to preach? He has. But I am not infallible. (laughs) I am not inerrant. And there are things that I have said where I've had to come back to you and say, you guys, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I blew it. I, you know, first of all, why would you trust any guy who never even went to college? Says a lot about you guys, really. (laughs) Never trust a man with a gold front tooth. Don't you know better? (laughs) But I I think that this is important. What what I'm trying to get at is that that God has given us the Holy Spirit. He has given us our minds. And what I want you to see here is something that is really profound because I'm deeply troubled by this. And this is where I want to land today. I think that what you see in Berea and why they're called more noble than those that were in Thessalonica is because Thessalonica, they weren't critically thinking through what Paul was saying to them. And that critical thinking, that process, when we become spirit-filled, it isn't that we then abandon the mind. When I say that spiritual illumination is not dependent upon intellectual capacity, I'm not saying that the spirit doesn't illuminate the mind. He utilizes you as you are. He created you. And he will, uh, we say that even preaching is communication of truth through a human personality. And so I think it's important for us to understand that they combined receptivity, they received the message with critical questioning. It was healthy. Not skepticism, but a, a desire to understand it for themselves. See, I think what happens too often in the church today is that there is a dangerous allure of spectacle and subjective experience or just sheer laziness where I'm going to let the preacher, the pastor, do the work for me. One of the things that, that for me, that, that pushed me into ministry was just a tenacious desire the moment I got saved to under... I, first of all, I got saved later in life. So there was this sense that I'd lost... I'd wasted so much of my life. I wasted my 20s pursuing fame and, and music, and I, was, and I was doing all the stupid things. And instead of going to college, I, I wanted to get a record deal and be famous. And I lost, I lost those years that that are so formative for most, most people. And, and so when I came to the Lord, it was just like, it was just boom. I just said, I am not going to be, con- I've got to make up for 10, 10 lost years. And so I just began to read everything I could get my hands on. I never took the preacher's word at it. I would like 
test it against other things and reading everything I could from and reading every theological book I can get my hands on and every, every apologetic book. And I, I think maybe because I was such an underachiever, I became an obnoxious overachiever. But that doesn't matter. And it, what, it, what I began to trust was one promise in the scripture that I came across. And that, that beginning to read the Bible over and over again and to get into the scriptures and to get the scriptures into me and to memorize entire passages for the purpose of just understanding. And listen, I, I, I didn't do well in school. I, and hopefully... That either makes you really nervous that you're listening to me or that you're inspired that God can take the most foolish person and, and make them a vehicle for his truth and his gospel. And I think that this is so important is that we need to trust that God can utilize only that which we have placed, took the time to place in, in our hearts and in our minds. And what we are dealing with today, and I believe this fully, is that there is this, this abandonment of, of, of thinking. And I want you to know that there is nowhere in the New Testament that says that we graduate beyond the importance of, of thinking well. In fact, there is nowhere in the Bible that to be spirit-filled means you actually bypass the mind, no, not, not once. Let me just read a, a couple of verses, Ephesians 4, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good, report if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate upon these things. The dangerous allure of spectacle and subjective experience in the church today is that we are driven, and I, I hear this complaint, I want to experience more. Hey, I want to experience more too. But I'm not trying to graduate past the gospel. And I think that when people start desiring for the emotional fill-up, uh, and, and, and I, I've seen the extremes. I've seen the, the side where the church is, is, is dead right. I've seen that. And that's, that's a sad reality. But I've also seen the, the, the side where it's performance Jesus and spectacle. Entertain me, but don't challenge me or hurt me. And I think that our willingness to feed upon whatever is given to us without any sort of critical thought is really, really damaging. And it's the very thing that the scriptures declared would, would come. Second Timothy chapter four, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. My point, guys, is that we need this Berea, that we need this Berean attitude a willingness to actually dig into the scriptures because I am terrified by the rise of, of just buying into whatever's presented to us because it's exciting and new. And I think that there is a lot happening in the church today that is extremely dangerous, that is actually goes beyond the parameters of scripture, that are actually presenting a false gospel. And I think that it's, it's falling into the trappings of being dr driven by our feelings rather than being anchored in the truth. George MacDonald once said, they had a feeling or a feeling had them until another feeling came and took its place. And I think that that defines much of what's happening in the church today. A prosperity gospel televangelist last week asked his followers to pray about partnering to his mission of obtaining $54 million private jet, the fourth one. And he said, if Jesus was alive today, he wouldn't be on a donkey yeah, I bet, Jesse. Because, uh, you know, he, but he for sure would buy a $54 million jet. Uh, and I think that this is one of those things where I'm just like, my mind is being blown when I look at the amount of hype that is happening within the church today. I was just reading a very, very popular preacher, and this is what terrifies me, is because it's playing into that desire for the emotional, 
the desire for the sensational, and it's the desire to actually, I'm bored with the gospel. And it's like, has, have you actually let the gospel settle into your life in such a way, how could you be bored with the good news? How could we move beyond anything more miraculous than the fact that God gave his only son who died on the cross for both the victim and the victimizer, who was both judge and judged in our place, who is reconciling the world to himself through his saving work? How can we move beyond that? How can we be bored with that? Why are we looking for the sensational? Why are we obsessed with the miraculous? Do I believe in signs and wonders? Do I believe they're for today? I do. Do I believe that healing is, happens today? I do. Do I believe that everybody should be healed? There's a lot of churches that are proclaiming that. But I don't know. I, as far as I can tell from the last statistic I looked at, the death rate is still one per person. And I think that this is problematic on multiple levels because what it is, is it's a, it's a, it's a hunger for something spectacular. I was just reading a, a, a section of a book by a very, very popular pastor right now. Uh, I, I would probably go to guess many within this room um, have, have listened to him, even benefited from him, because that's the thing is that even, even with false teachers, there's usually enough truth in there. And I often say this about wolves. Wolves generally don't know that they're wolves. And what we need to be doing is constantly examining what is being spoken, whether it's from me or from the most popular teacher in the world. It doesn't matter. You should be testing it against the scriptures. You should be praying that the Holy Spirit gives you discernment. Because listen to this quote from this book, because I want to just share with you, this is a very popular book from a very popular pastor right now. It says, usually those who use the natural mind to protect themselves from deception are the most deceived. Uh, What? Now, I, I recognize that if you're talking about carnality or a, a mind that is not, you're not born again and you're dead and you're, yes, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Christians who are critical of his message. So he says, those of the natural mind to protect themselves from deception are most deceived. They've relied on their own finite logic and reason to keep them safe, which is in itself a deception. Our hearts can embrace things that our heads can't. Double, second blow right there. Our hearts will lead us where our logic would never dare to go. What does it say about the heart in Jeremiah 17, 9? That the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. Now we're told that we will be given a new heart. The heart of stone will be removed and we'll be given a heart of flesh, speaking specifically that we will be given God's heart to think God's thoughts after him. But the, the mind, we're never told that that the mind is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. In fact, what we're told is to actually renew the mind, to take every thought captive into the obedience of Jesus. Uh, And I think, let me just move on because it, it gets even crazier than that. But to follow the Holy Spirit, we must be willing to follow off the map. And what he is ultimately saying in this particular passage from his book is we need to move beyond the scriptures. To go beyond what we know. New revelation new realities. To do so successfully, we must recognize his presence above all. And again, he says, it's difficult to expect the same fruit of the early church when we value a book they didn't have more than the Holy Spirit they did have. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. I agree with that statement. Nonetheless, it is the Holy Bible that actually gives us insight into who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is. And I think that you're, we're dealing with problematic. Do you want to talk about sensational when you, have, when you have statements like 
this is, there is no cancer within 20 miles of this church, and then you have someone die of cancer and say, oh, we, we were wrong. Or it's God always wants to heal. Or the only true evidence that you are truly born again is that your life manifests signs and wonders. That is legalism. Because that is not what is demanded of the believer. What is demanded of us is a total yieldedness to Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit and the miracle that he works through us is the miracle of the gospel which draws men and women to himself. And if God wants to heal and he wants to give a word or knowledge on the way, that's great, but it all should serve the gospel. And if it moves away from the gospel, I don't care if it's a miracle. We're told to test the spirits. Pharaoh's court was filled with miracles, but they were doing witchcraft. They weren't functioning by the power of God. And I think that this is really important for us to understand. And I've just been deeply troubled by this increasing desire for the sensational and a move away from the gospel. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want us, you guys... To be a church. Why it troubles me when I read those kinds of things is because so many people are being allured in to an emotionally intense experience that when life begins to fall apart, it leaves them on their face with nowhere to go. What we need to present is the, the gospel, the truth of it is God loves you. And it, it doesn't mean that he's going to protect you from difficulties in life, but it means that he is going to be with you in the midst of them and that the gospel is always beautiful and always exciting. And if God wants to manifest himself in miraculous ways, that's great. But if it was that commonplace, it wouldn't be a miracle. And I think that we need to understand that what we should be looking for is the opportunity to share the love of Jesus with a broken and hurting city. And I want us as a people to move into this open-mindedness. I want us to test the words of God that are declared. Let me just share with you the close of this passage because I think it's so powerful. It says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. And notice what happens again. The hostility arises, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The most powerful thing is that even when hostility comes, God takes the ugliness of man's attempt to destroy his word, and all it does is propels it forward into the world. And that is the thing is nothing can stop the power of the saving message of Jesus from spreading. But we can prevent it from being spreading through our own lives. Are we willing to be conduits and vessels by which Jesus is known? What are we looking for? What did you come here and uh, hoping to find? My prayer is that you meet Jesus, King Jesus, as he declares himself to be. He is the bread of life. Let's not add to him. Let's take nothing away from him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May we continue to be a community that preaches the gospel. Amen? I feel better now. I just had to get that off my chest. Okay, let's pray.